Hey, this is Alex Terranova, and this is the Dream Mason Podcast. We've been taught to behave, to fit in, to follow the rules, but Dream Masons reject conventional thought. Dream Masons are rebels. They take a chisel to the marble that is typical traditional life. They carve out brilliance and broadcast it to the world. Join me for another chapter as we unmask convention, embrace the rebels within us, and more deeply come to explore the complex and agitated edges of our existence. Now, before we get started, please don't be a rebel yet and grab your phone and hit that little button that says subscribe. Thank you. Because your dreams don't build themselves. What's up? And welcome back to the Dream Mason podcast. I have some exciting things I want to share before we jump in here. Um, I am launching a new podcast from Accomplishment Media, which is the media company that I work with, that I record out here out in San Diego. This new podcast is, oh man, it's like, a, it's this cool collaboration. So it's called Flip the Lens. Uh, right now, you can find it either on Accomplishment Media or you can go to Flip the Lens Podcast on Instagram. What's really cool about this podcast is a former client of mine who's also been on this podcast and a guest of mine uh, who I met through like networking, who's also been on this podcast. So London Papa Michael and Brie Holland. We got into this conversation about authenticity and these people show up so powerfully in the world and online. And they show like they reveal so much of who they are and share it with the world without like fear of what people are going to think or opinions or whatnot. And I'm so impressed with them as who they are and who they are in the world that we got in this conversation about how do we start sharing authenticity? How do we start sharing what's real instead of this like manicured way that we are? And this is going to tie into this podcast beautifully, but uh, Flip the Lens is all about authenticity. It's all about vulnerability. It's all about talking about issues in life that we often shy away from, heartbreak, sadness, disease, uh, things that draw up emotions and feelings that make us uncomfortable that a lot of us don't want to talk about, grief, sadness, things like that. So the three of us dive in. Uh, please uh, follow Flip the Lens podcast on Instagram so you can be kept, kept up on when it's going to be released, but it's going to be out in March. With that, that's the exciting news. Uh, this podcast, ironically or magically, is going to tie right into that. I want to start today with a quote. I'm reading this amazing book called The Wild Edge of Sorrow, uh, Rituals of Renewal and the Sacred Work of Grief by Francis Weller. This is not something I would normally read. It feels like a little too emotional, and I am loving it. This book is blowing my mind. It's shifting my relationship to feelings like this thought of like, oh, we're supposed to be happy. We're supposed to feel good. And we forget that sadness, anger, other feelings are actually part of the experience. So I'm, I'm loving this book. And the thing that I'm really getting is we have this belief that like everything is like, let's get back to happy. Let's be happy. Happy is the right emotion. And we forget that you know, it's our emotions are almost like a swing set. Like the swing's got to go back and it's got to go forward and it can't go one way without the other. And I don't know where happiness is on that scale, but grief, sorrow, sadness, anger, depression, frustration, all those things are on the scale. 
And we've built a society where we don't even tap into like any of those things where we, we hide our sadness, we hide our pain, anger, scary and bad. We have all these things. And this book is, is really letting me see that exercising all those other emotions and not hiding away from them, but embracing them, sharing them with other people, getting supported, you know, crying with somebody, not in secret, being angry with somebody is actually healing and is letting me feel more of life. And again, I think this is going to tie into this podcast too. And I, there's a quote from this book. There's two that I want to read you as we jump in and as I introduce my guest. The first is from William Blake. And he says, the deeper the sorrow, the greater the joy. And the author, um, the author of this book, Francis Weller, goes on to say, life is hard, filled with loss and suffering. Life is glorious, stunning, and incomparable. To deny either truth is to live in some fantasy of the ideal or be crushed by the weight of pain. Instead, both are true, and it requires a famili familiarity with both sorrow and joy to fully encompass the full range of being human. And I know from just this last few weeks of, of doing this work through this that this book is giving me access to, I, I, I don't know that there's a more true statement for how I feel about life now. I want to I wanna take this and, and move right into introducing our guest today. Our guest is a friend of mine. She's a colleague. We have worked together. You know, I think when I first met her, she was more in like a mentor figure, like she had experience that I didn't have. I was able to learn a lot from her. We became friends. We became partners in the journey of training coaches and helping um, transform other human beings while teaching them leadership skills and coaching skills. She is an executive life coach for unfulfilled overachievers. She's a professional certified coach, a professional coach trainer. She's a mentor coach. She is a quote unquote proud nerd of the life coaching industry and human behavior. She's been published. She's appeared on podcasts, things around coaching and money and wellness. And she's worked with employees or company employees at companies or with companies such as Google, Facebook, Comcast. And one of her clients actually recently gave a TED talk, which is pretty awesome. Lisa Pachance, welcome to the Dream Mason podcast. Oh, I'm so flattered. What a oh. great introduction. How are you? Oh, I'm good. I'm excited to talk about what we're going to be talking about today. Did, um, go ahead. And yes. I cannot, I cannot wait to get that book. I already ordered it via Amazon. Nice. <laughs> you're, you're welcome, Francis Weller. Um, <laughs> Here's $13. Enjoy. I, I'm, um, I'm curious, like, did anything that I just... Like, did anything, did you have any thoughts while you were, cause you were listening to all that. You didn't just pop up right, yeah. right before. I, did anything come up for you personally? I mean, you know me too. So, you, you know, it's not like you're just hearing some of this for the first time. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm feeling emotional about everything that you said, particularly about how that book resonated with you. And of course, all the things you said about me were wonderful. You know, going back to our, our early years of um, mentor-mentee and friendship, and now we we are where we are. Um, but knowing your journey and being able to pick up this particular book and open yourself up to the different types of emotions and not just what you should be feeling was so, it, it touched me, um, partly because I know the journey that you've been on, but also because that's that's uh, a layer of what I've been working on 
recently. Like I've been going much deeper into my emotional healing than I ever had before. And I've always been interested in emotional healing. It's how I got into coaching accidentally. Therapy wasn't working anymore. And so I got to try something different. Um, But what you said about uh, happiness usually being the only emotion that's allowable, you said it somewhat differently, that you should be happy. Happy is good. Is, um, oh man, that is such a pervasive thing. It's so pervasive. And being able to unlock other emotions and be with other emotions in a deeper way, I think allows even more happiness. But happiness looks different when you're able to do that. It turns into something deeper like joy. I I know for me, like feeling these feelings has been super uncomfortable, really (laughs) hard, um, like painful. Like it, it, there, I feel like for the last few weeks I've been walking around raw like, mm. like, I don't know what is going to show up. I don't know how I'm going to be with it. I just know that I'm committed to actually embracing it, feeling it, diving into it. I've kind of, the way I've been kind of encouraging myself forward is thinking about like, Hey, if you were in like a really, if you had a personal trainer who was pushing you or you were in a spin class and they were pushing you, you get to a point where it feels painful, where your brain's like, I got to get out of this hot room. I got to stop pedaling. I can't go this fast. I can't lift this much mm. weight. But the way that we get stronger is we actually push through that. We keep going. That's what makes our muscles grow, our endurance get you know bigger, more longer, whatever. And I relate to it as this is my this is where my emotional uh, ability and emotional range grows, which to me feels like soul growth. How is you're somebody that I know of that has a lot of emotions and it, and it expresses them more freely than I I did. How is it for you when you're doing this kind of work? Oh man. (laughs) It's funny because part of my brain is going, I shouldn't be freely expressing my emotions. (laughs) Um, Oh, that's such a rich conversation. So uh, I'm going to talk for a second about what just came up for me. Yeah. So when you said that I'm someone who you know of as someone who expresses my emotions freely, Um, I very much judge that part of myself from my ego. I know that um, part of what we're going to talk about today is is the um, nefariousness of perfectionism and and how pervasive it is. But for a long time, I was also taught that showing emotions were wrong and bad and that it should be shut into a container, saved for later, for behind closed doors. It shouldn't be seen. No one wants to see that type of emotional-ness. And I think it actually, it, it not only stunted my ability to be with joy, but it also pushed me in, in a place of perpetual pain that never allowed growth. It was just pain that got stuck, which, I mean, I think you can probably call suffering. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's unintentional suffering, yeah. right? Pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. And I suffered for so many years because I developed this mentality that I couldn't and shouldn't feel my emotions. But of course, conversely, those emotions like a beach ball underwater had to come out somewhere and somehow. And it usually, my emotions would usually come out in ways that were irresponsible or in ways that were unintentional and had unintentional consequences. 
So a lot of my work now and this year is about self-love from an emotional well-being standpoint. I love the beach ball analogy. I, I know that I think I know it because I've heard you talk about it. We actually just for people that are like, wait, what? What do you? What does that mean? We actually describe what that means. <laughs> sure. So it's a very visceral sensation. But if if I'm to stuff emotions, and this is I think for for a lot of different people, if anyone were to stuff their emotions and push them down, it, it doesn't have anywhere to go. It's like holding a beach ball underwater. At some point, you can't hold that beach ball underwater. There's going to be too much pressure pushing back up, almost like a lava container. The lava has to come out at some point. And like trying to hold a beach ball underwater, if you do that with your emotions, eventually you're going to get tired of holding it underwater and the emotions are going to erupt out of the water and shoot out. And you, you have no idea where it's going to go. When you let go of that beach ball, it could go left, it could go right, it could go forward, it can hit you in the face. You just have no idea. It could hit your friend in the face. Mm-hmm. You don't know. Um, but it's interesting, the more that you're able to be with your emotions, the more you can skillfully and artfully work with them. I think it's like, you know, learning. To, I have two cats, right? I talk about my cats all the time. But it's like trying to train a cat. If you don't, if you don't learn how to be with that cat and what that cat's rhythms are and what they like and what they don't like, cats are not trainable through negative reinforcement by any stretch of the means. That's why they say, you know, you can't train a cat. But cats are actually quite trainable. You have to learn to be with them and positively reinforce where they're at, what they need, how they are, hmm. in order to have them do something that aligns with what you want them to do. Interesting. So, I love yeah. it. I, I can see the beach ball, like when it's floating, it's so controllable, mm-hmm. right? You can, it's, or it's malleable. Mm-hmm. You can like do whatever you want with it. If you want to pick it up, if you want to move it right, left, up, totally. down, whatever. But I love mm-hmm. that. It's so true. We all know that. Like when we're hold, we've all done that as a kid, hold that beach ball underwater. And then we, sh- it shoots up and it does, it hits us in the face and it's friends. And when you were saying it, I was thinking about relationships I've had, whether me or the other person did something like that where because we didn't have, I want to say a healthy relationship to our emotions and our feelings when they showed up, they were disastrous. And, Mm. you know, I I bet all of us, every person listening, every person in the world probably has a graveyard behind them of relationships that in some way, shape or form probably ended because of some version of unattended or un, um, un, yeah, unattended to, or, unhealthily processed emotional things from their past that then exploded in some way. Oh, I love that analogy, a graveyard of relationships. Oh yeah. I always, um, (laughs) I always like, I'm very, I use that a lot when I, I meet people and people always think people always think they're going to change people. I mean, you know, this is a coach, (laughs) right? Like I'm going to get my husband or my wife or my boss or my kid. They're going to be different. And whenever I hear somebody say that they're going to change me, I laugh and I'm like, there's a graveyard of people behind you that would try to do that. They're no longer. (laughs) Good luck. It's a fair warning. You should come with a sticker on the back that says that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
Sorry, you don't, you don't like danger yeah. graveyard of relationships. <laughs> yeah, it's friendships, relationships. I, and I don't I don't it's not bad. It's just like, hey, this is who I am. If you want to like if you love me or you want to be with me or you want to be friends with me, like accept me for that. And I want to do the same with you. I don't want you to be different. I want you to be the best version of yourself, but I don't want you to be someone else. I think that's that's actually a really cool sticking point is I want I want to relate to you as your best but I don't want you to be someone else. Right. Oh man. You know, if this could be a lesson that's taught early on in childhood in schools, instead of things like geometry. Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) Man, the world would be a better place. (laughs) We need emotional well-being all the time, but, but parabolic curves. I mean, when have we used that recently? (laughs) Yeah. The last date I was on, we were, we were totally bonding over parabolic curves. I don't even know what parabolic curves are. Um, <laughs> exactly. It's helpful during parabolic curve season. I feel like if I said to a woman out in the world, what do you think about parabolic curves? I might get smacked as like, <laughs> don't like, um, let's, let's, I want to talk about, <laughs> I want to, I want to transition this and I think it's related, but I want to talk about perfectionism because this is an area that mm. you and I've talked about. Um, and I think it's, we, it's pervasive. It's, I think men men and women do it a little different and and maybe it's not men and women, maybe it's masculine, feminine, but I really want to hear like, we, will you share your story of, cause you didn't always know you were a perfectionist, but like your story in that and how, like almost like the consequences, like where it got you. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny. I always knew I was a high achiever, but I never understood why. Never understood it until I really started diving deep and it seems like every single year that I do more work on my, my own foundations, my past, my baggage, my ego, all of that stuff, which is very much tied to my leadership and my coaching work. I feel like another layer of why I was a perfectionist and a high performer comes out. And it wasn't always for good reasons that I was a high performer. Actually, it was really born out of insecurity Um, I think that the pinnacle of my perfectionism came out somewhere in high school or college where I needed to, I needed to achieve in order to be okay. And the thing about perfectionism in doing my own work and and doing some studying and research, because I, I'm fascinated by the idea of perfectionism, I find that there are a lot of versions of perfectionism out there. You know, like you said, maybe perfectionism in men and women are a little bit different. Um, I, I picked up an article in the Business Insider where a psychologist was talking about perfectionism and she narrowed it down to six types of perfectionism that can make you unhappy. One of which is performance perfectionism which is to, um, you know, to, in order to feel worthwhile, I must be a great success at everything I do. And I think the one that you might've been referring to was identity perfectionism that might show up more for, for men. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, where perfectionism looks like people will never accept me as a flawed human. Mm. There's also emotional perfectionism. I must always try to be happy and control my negative emotions. I can't possibly be anything else. But for me, my perfectionism showed up as performance perfectionism. Um, And this past year, um, 
I warn you, this is kind of a sensitive topic for me and it's, it's relatively new, but uh, it's new to talk about at least in public. But um, this it's, past year, I've been doing a me. lot of just us, no one else here. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I know, but I've been doing some work around EMDR therapy. Um, and I don't know if you know what EMDR therapy is. And I honestly don't remember what it stands for, but it's essentially going back in time to when you have the most intense or earliest memories of something negative and you relive that memory over and over and over mm. until it's so real and so raw that you are sobbing uncontrollably. So that's what EMDR therapy is. Now, what, what's the, what's the purpose of it? Like, how does that, how do they say that's supposed to support you or help you? So now in therapy, what you do with that is you learn how to replace that memory with something that you were lacking that you needed because those memories were essentially what forms your um, disempowered behavior. So for instance, I've been reliving a couple of memories that reinforced my perfectionism, something that disempowered me uh, to very, very sad memories of mine. And what I do with my therapist is I identify what it was that I didn't have that I needed. And we developed a persona, basically a mother figure uh, of someone who embodied the traits that I needed, that I was missing. Empathy, understanding, someone who's a cheerleader. And I love my parents very much, but they just didn't carry a lot of feminine empathy. I think that's a, I think that's a great thing that you just threw in. Like, um, I have wonderful parents. I'm super lucky. Like, I know I met your parents. Um, everybody yeah. doesn't have parents to like that are there. We're supportive. But I think the thing is, it doesn't matter who your parents were or who they weren't. Like, we think like, oh, if you had good parents, you're you're great or you're fine or. Like no one knows how to be a parent. There's no real instruction manual. There's no like a, how do I, when my kid comes home crying because they got bullied in school, like really, what am I exactly am I supposed to do? You might show up with love. You might show up with listening. Your kid might need something completely different. But that as a child, like I think the, the we don't know how to even ask for what we need as a little kid or we're not even like our brain isn't working at that level yet. And so as an adult, it, there's there's always a guessing game. And I think whether you've, you know, I'm somebody that's really lucky that I look back and I go, man, I don't have any major trauma, but mm -hmm. even the little things in life where I didn't win or I got a bad grade or somebody didn't like me or somebody said something, yes, they're not major trauma, but from my little kid brain, they had a really big impact. Totally. And so I, I just want to put like people listening that are like, well, my parents were great or my parents weren't wow. great, you know, or I didn't have something or I did have huge things. Like it doesn't really matter. Like we all have some version of this. Yeah. It's so interesting that you say that, Alex, because for, for several sessions, I was defensive with my therapist. I'm like, look, my parents were great. They did the best they could. Mm -hmm. It's okay. I've forgiven them for that. And she's like, but have you forgiven you? And I finally got that, that I, I still had layers of my own perfectionism that I needed to heal for no other purpose than little old me interpreted something mm -hmm. that meant something more than it probably was. And my parents just didn't guess right that one time to give me exactly <laughs> what I needed. And it's like, it's no one's fault, but there's still, there's still work to do around it. 
<clears throat> so um, I think your original question was where, where did my perfectionism develop? And I, I, I think the most intense layer of perfectionism happened in seventh and eighth grade where I had, I'd been homeschooled for six years of my life. Uh, I was athletic and I was still social, but I wasn't in school to the extent that other kids were. So I didn't develop certain social skills and I had to really learn on the spot. I was also playing for a very high level rigorous soccer team and we were traveling internationally in seventh and eighth grade. I mean, this was, this is like big stuff. Mm -hmm. So I had this tension of being undersupported and underskilled in certain basic foundational things, but still being held to a very high level of achievement that I needed to make. And so I learned during that period of time that that was how life was, or at least that's how my, um, my inner protection interpreted it, that I was underskilled and yet I still had the super high bar to make. And there was such a, there was such a dichotomy. I was, uh, it created such an intense amount of loneliness and isolation and self-loathing and not good enough that, um, I ended up being suicidal in eighth grade. Like I tried to take my life. It was so, it was so painful and so tragic internally. And, um, you know, luckily I got, I got help. I got support and my trajectory changed. And I still had issues of anxiety and loneliness and depression pretty much my entire adult life until I started working um, with a coach about seven years ago and really uncovering why I was so lonely. And it was because of this performance perfection that I had generated for myself for protection in eighth grade but I had never, um, I never put down. And so I'm super passionate about this idea of perfectionism, realizing that it's pervasive. I'm not, certainly not the only one that has it. I think everyone has a little bit of it. And uh, in an era where everyone is overwhelmed and super isolated and lonely, I think that those two things are very correlated and I've lived through it too. There's um in the in the Francis Weller book Edge of Sorrow they talk a lot about how we've drifted so far from like communities and um, connection mm. with like our communities mm. right like if we look at native cultures right smaller groups like lots of ceremonies lots of getting like people working together and being together whether they're working mm. or just right like if you, let's go back right no TVs no podcasts no phones like everyone's actually with each other. Yeah. And that they do so much work in native cultures around their emotions, like processing them. Mm. But it's all through this lens of being together. And as I was listening to you, that's the thing I noticed for me. And I noticed for a lot of like my clients or people I've been in relationships with, friends or romantically, that because it's like the perfect storm right now that we, in the, around this topic, is we we have a society that we're like, achieve more, do better, win more, more accomplishments, more accolades, more money, more success, blah, 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 blah. And then, which is fine, right? If that's what you want, great. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with any of that in itself. But then we also, at the exact same time, have a society that is more spread apart and more lonely and alone than they've mm -hmm. ever been. Mm -hmm. 
And then the third piece is we're also not allowed to feel anything but happiness. Yes, queen. Oh, yes. And we don't know. And and so there's, it's like all those things together. It's like, no wonder we're miserable, angry, hate each other, depressed, killing, like suicidal, um, you know, like have eating disorders or having affairs, like whatever we can go on and on, but it's like, cause all we want is like love and connection and, and we can't, and, and to pro like, we're all a beat, we're all beach balls and we have no ability to deal with any of this. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want to get into politics on this, in this conversation, but I think that's one of the reasons why we cannot have um, clear headed, compassionate political conversations anymore. Like we all mean well, we all want to like do good for society and for ourselves, but we have no idea how to have those conversations that connect each other under a common commitment anymore. It's always you're wrong, I'm right. And every single time we do that, we push those beach balls further and further under the water, causing more anger, more sadness, more eruption. Yeah. And we're seeing it all the time. Um, I'm actually really excited about some of the things that I'm up to this year because uh, part of my my mission is to is to generate real conversations around what we're not talking about in order to develop community and skills in talking about sensitive things. Mm. Like that is what I am up to this year. I'm so excited about that. Um, I've even created a uh, a small. Um, coaching group of women where we, we go out, we have dinner and we talk about one sensitive topic Mm. and everyone gets a chance to talk about it and share. And that's it. That's all we do. But it's so powerful. That's really cool. That's exactly like what the flip the lens podcast is based off one topic, right? We'll like get into vulnerability, three of us. And we share like how it relates to us personally, the stories we have, the difficulties, the challenges. And sometimes we might like maybe support each other or not, but it's that same thing. We don't get that, right? I know I know most relationships I have that are not with coaches or colleagues, people don't want to go that deep. Yeah. They're, you know, it's not what we're trained to do. Yeah. And because we don't know how to go that deep or we don't want to go that deep, we have these other unintended consequences of being overwhelmed and lonely. Oh my gosh. I, I, we might be coming up on time, but I have one more thing that I want to share. In Brene Brown's Dare to Lead book, there was a set of research that she did with the Harvard Business Review, where they went into operation departments and big corporations in the US and they studied they studied uh, departments that were inherently creating burnout. Like their employees were overwhelmed, they were exhausted, and they went in and they studied why. Why are they overwhelmed and exhausted? And it wasn't because they had too much to do and not enough time. It was because they were lonely. Their loneliness was directly creating exhaustion. Mm. That's perfect. So I have two things I want to talk about before we we leave this. One is mm-hmm. in the world we live in, we're like, we're all motivated by achieving and getting more and creating more and leaving more behind and, and all these things of that are like high achiever kind of conversations. I know that you're not like asking people to not be 
to have big goals. I know you're all about having big, right? We talked about, you know, mm-hmm. a person giving a TED talk and, and mm-hmm. things I've talked to you about things your clients do. And, but how do we, how do you support people to, to have those big things, but not, I want to say be cons- fully consumed by them? Totally. It's such, it's such a great question. <clears throat> I think there's two parts of this conversation. The first thing is identifying and sharing the vulnerable, painful pieces of what's in our way, right? What we've talked about, the perfectionism, uh, the things that came up in childhood that have stuck with us that are no longer serving us, but are making us unhappy, those things. And then learning how to talk about them. But then the second piece is, is turning the corner. You know, once you're through that, that swamp of emotions and understanding yourself, what do you do on the other side? And uh, in my own research, in my own experience, what I think is important is learning how to create healthy striving from a different place. So my thing is that perfectionism isn't built to get things right. It's built to make yourself wrong. It's a motivator. It's something that that accidentally gets um, permanently wired in your brain to this is how you motivate yourself. You be perfect and then you'll be great. But instead we have to develop different ways of motivating ourselves. Like instead of loathing ourselves to success, loving ourselves to success. Mm. So there's, there's a whole bunch of practices. It's funny in, in thinking about what I wanted to talk about today, I, w- I started jotting down potential practices that I would suggest to a client who was working on this. Uh, and it's all around having resilience to your own thoughts and then being able to create a healthy striving mechanism. Um, a couple of practices that I would recommend is, uh, first of all, growing a sense of humor with yourself. You know, like, like how we're talking about things here, like being sensitive and compassionate, but also going, wow, our brains are really effed up. Like we are not built to have happiness in modern society. Like you got to grow a sense of humor about what's happening so that you can develop some compassion. One other thing that's been really fun for me in overcoming my perfectionism is do things for no other reason than to have fun and create joy. Like literally start to enjoy yourself in situations that don't have that pressure of performance or perfection. And I think this allows you to, uh, to start to set goals for yourself and to achieve them in ways that are healthy and loving. And then I think that the last thing that I would recommend is, is when you're setting goals for yourself, from a purpose-driven and loving place. And there's a lot of ways to support that, you know, like your seven levels of why. Basically, if you want to do something, ask yourself why seven times. (laughs) (laughs) And the seventh layer is usually something that truly means something to you. But once you get there, set your goals and achieve them within partnership. Never go at goals alone, ever, anymore. Even if this means going about a goal with, um, you know, with a friend or a colleague or a coach or a therapist, or even just channeling God as you're doing it or the universe, like make sure that whatever you do, 
do it within partnership because partnership is an antidote to perfection. Mm. So I'd highly recommend if you are a perfectionist or you're working on a different relationship with your emotions to take some of these things on. And you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of other other work that I could recommend, like creating a different relationship with your emotions, practice giving and receiving compassionate feedback. But I think in the end, having a sense of humor and getting a partner are some of the most astounding um, pieces of impact that you will have on your own journey around perfectionism. The the last question I wanted to ask you is so perfect because it you you almost you like led me right up to it because you said partnership <laughs> is the antidote to perfection, which is such a cool mm. quote. Um, mm. And I was thinking about loneliness because it seems like we came kind of came kind of back to that in a way. And um, do you have a way that people like someone listening to this that feels lonely, feels disconnected, that wants to get into partnership and doesn't know how? Like, is there like one tip that you'd be like to break out of loneliness and create some partnership? This is like the number one thing. Ooh. Well, I think the easiest thing to do is to book a session with a coach <laughs> or a therapist and start getting support immediately. Um, I've been talking a lot about Brene Brown today, but one of the things in her, in her book, Dare to Lead, is that she has her employees write themselves permission slips, actually on a piece of paper, on a post-it, and go, what are you giving yourself permission for during this meeting? Mm. Um, and I highly recommend writing permission slips for yourself before you go about your day so that you have an intention. I give myself permission to partner. I give myself permission to play. I give myself permission to be vulnerable. I think that very much helps. And when it comes to finding, like finding a partner, I think we oftentimes close off the most obvious people. Like if you were to look in your life, who are your people? Who are your champions? People who you might not have talked to recently, but who you know you could call up and they would say, I got you. And I like to have my clients make a list of those people almost within the first couple sessions so that they know who their tribe is going to be. I, um, I don't know if you've seen, I think this is a great example of it. Have you seen that show on Amazon uh, on Amazon Modern Love. No, but it looks great. It's, it's really good. And it's, it's their true stories that are based on things people wrote for, I think like it's not the New York Times, but maybe the New York Post or something, but they're real. There's one episode where I'm blanking on the actress's name, but really big actress. And she plays somebody who's bipolar. And Tina Fey? No. Tina Fey? I'm, I, it's, it's, so she plays a, somebody who's bipolar and it's about like trying to her navigate, you know, there are 30 minutes, I think like she's trying to navigate her relationship and her job and she's a high powered lawyer and she can't really keep a job because of the, how the bipolar just impacts her. And mm -hmm. at the very end of the episode, she f confides in her coworker out at coffee. Like she's about to leave. She's just gotten fired from another job. And the coworker's like, do you want to grab coffee? 
And they sit down and she tells her coworker that she's bipolar. And she's the first person that she's ever told. And she's put mm. herself in this situation, as you see through the episode, where she's ultimately completely isolated because the 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 disorder has essentially ruined every relationship she's ever had. And she's embarrassed about it and she has shame about it. And you see that it just reminded me that there's people out there that don't think they have anyone. Their family's not supportive. Their friend, you don't. Maybe they don't. The kind of friends they have are not going to be supportive or helpful. But I, what I got from that scene in that episode is when she opens up and she cracks and is vulnerable with her coworker. And obviously, mm -hmm. this is a show, but I do believe humans are like this. Her coworker leans in and like takes her hands, and is like, "I want to be. I want to be your friend. Like this is actually the closest we've ever gotten because you actually finally showed me who you are." And, yeah. and it made, when I, I've seen that episode a few times, I think it's one of the best episodes of TV. Um, it reminds me that like, we spend all this time perfection, you know, pretending, doing all these things to try to get people to think about us in a certain way. And often it's doing the opposite. It's keeping us more isolated, more alone. So if you are someone that is like, I don't have, I don't have the resources for a coach or a therapist, or I don't have people around me that will help me and be supportive or will listen. I, I promise there's somebody that if you actually were open or vulnerable with and actually shared with them, I'm really sad or I'm depressed or I'm sick or whatever, there's somebody that would actually totally get you and be there for you but you'd actually have to be willing to like walk out on that plank and find out. Um, yeah. Lisa, thank you. Thank you. Didn't cry. I know you were thought you might. So, um, <laughs> congratulations. Maybe next time. Uh, maybe next time. Uh, thanks for, yeah. you know, coming on here. You know, you, you asked me if you could create an episode with me and I love mm -hmm. that I've recently looked at this podcast from like, yeah, there's people I want to get. And then there's people that are like, I want to be on. And I'm like, cool, what do you want to create? Like, I love it. Like for me, this podcast is so much about partnership and about being curious and learning. So thanks for partnering with me and creating this episode, um, doing it really like very quickly. And at least for me, there was a ton of value. Like I learned a lot. I know that people that listen to it will get a lot and I think really resonate from the conversation, but thanks for being vulnerable. Thanks for sharing, you know, some of the challenging things that have happened in your life uh, in service of other people. Thank you so much. Yeah. Oh, Alex, I felt so held today. Thank you. This is so much fun. I already can't wait to come back. What are, what are the best ways for people? I know you have, you have a, um, like a warm up ritual thing that people can get from you. And like, what are the best ways for people to follow you or learn more about you? Yeah. I'd say that the, the best the best way for people to get in touch with me is to either send me an email, lisa.pachence, P-A-C-H-E-N-C-E, at accomplishmentcoaching.com. Or you can visit my website, www.coachingwithlp.com. And I'm doing a lot, of, I'm doing a lot more um, value-provided services this year. So I developed a freebie called The Warm-Up Ritual, How to Get Into... Uh, how to get into action when you just don't want to. I also have a couple of webinars that I'm doing um, with a group out in Chicago, one of which is a webinar about mental resiliency. And it's all about what we talked about today. So that's also available for just $25. 
And that $25 actually goes to Sarah Circle in Chicago, which is a non-for-profit for for women who are at risk and homeless. Um, The the links for that are on your website, coachingwithlp.com? Yep. Yep. And to get in touch with me, to book a session, to reach out to me, the freebie, all of that is on my website. Awesome. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks again. Thanks, Alex. Lots of love. Thanks for listening. Honestly, I'm just a rebel who found a cause and has a dream, and I'm super grateful for your support. If you got anything from this, please help me out and share this podcast with one person today. You can find me at thedreammason.com or at inspirationalalex on Instagram. You are a dream mason because your dreams don't build themselves.